Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. So, today... We are going to do uh, well for those of us, for those of you who haven't been with us lately. Uh, by lately, I mean for two weeks. I've been doing a series of power hours on the subjects of the book that I am writing, which keeps changing titles. And right now, it's the moral case for fossil fuels, which I like a lot. So I hope hope it stays that way. And last week we did climate change with Eric Dennis, and this week we're going to do. Uh, climate change again, because there's lots more to talk about. You know, it's it's the biggest issue by far in terms of opposition to fossil fuels. There's lots to get clear on. And today I wanted to bring on a uh, longtime researcher for CIP, Stefan Hen, who hails from Germany and knows a ton about all of the associated issues, helps me a lot with my work, and I think will help you a lot with your thinking and understanding on the issues. So without further ado, we will be joined by Stefan on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now from Germany is our guest and uh, frequent CIP contributor, Stefan Hen. Stefan, welcome back to Power Hour. Hello, Alex. Thank you for inviting me back. All right. So earlier this week, I've been telling listeners that we're having for about the next 10 weeks, power hours based on the chapter of my book that I'm working on. And earlier this week, I had Eric Dennis on, also a perennial favorite. And we discussed the climate change chapter and we went on for an hour and 45 minutes. But that wasn't enough time. Uh, rather, there's there's plenty more to discuss, and you and I have discussed a lot of this privately. We discussed a bit of it, you know, a decent amount of it during the McKibben, uh, after the McKibben debate when we did a two-part analysis of that, but there's plenty of stuff, and, and uh, I've learned a lot from you, and I've thought a lot about it since then, so let's, let's, let's talk some more. Are you ready to go? Yes. All right, so here's, here's the perspective I want to uh, deal with this from. I... I remember, I was thinking yesterday while writing how I came to this issue as a kid. And as a kid, the only thing that I ever, quote unquote, learned about fossil fuels was that they were connected to this big global warming problem. I didn't live in an area and really know in any meaningful way what fossil fuels were, except I knew that they were bad in this way. And I, I came from... Um, insofar as a kid can come from a scientific background, I did. My family is, is, is full of scientists. All four of my grandparents are scientists, which it was rare to have a female physicist and female chemist, but that's what my grandmothers were. Uh, and I went to a you know, very prestigious math and science magnet program in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland called Montgomery Blair for any who study that scene. And, you know, 
the people and generally the people in my life were telling me insofar as they talked about it, look, this is, you know, there, there's a problem here. They weren't all that specific about it, but I, I distinctly remember science teachers saying, look, there's, you know, global warming is happening. It's real. Um, and then there'd be these discussions of these different negative consequences and sea levels and, and the whole production. And, you know, although I didn't buy it all for various reasons, uh, including the fact that generally the people who had these views, I noticed, tend to have a very opposite political views. So it seemed there seemed to be a big political component uh, of the issue, and, and not and not a pro-capitalist component on their side. And I, I myself became pro-capitalist in my my mid-teens. Um, but also, it's just sort of overwhelming. I mean, there's just so much stuff you're hearing, and it's hard to sort through. So with that as an intro, what I want to do is is start by asking you. How, if you were dealing with such a person, and I'll make it even harder, let's say you're dealing with someone who's totally honest, and so not not hostile, doesn't hate industry or anything like that, but who grow, who's grown up in Hollywood, let's say an aspiring young actor who's honest, who could be convinced of the truth, but who's just bombarded with all of these things. If you were explaining this to him or her, let's just say her, what, where would you start given the chaos she's been exposed to her whole life and in her adult life? Um, you mean how would I explain the uh, debate about climate change? Well, so, yeah, I mean, you have, you have a certain view in the end about, and, and particularly, I mean, ultimately it's the debate we'd probably agree is misframed as, as just focused on climate change per se, uh, that it's ultimately the issue of fossil fuels and climate and then more broadly the relationship between fossil fuels and life but this person is starting from you know all these movies and claims that we're causing global warming and it's bad and uh, I'm just curious and you might not have an answer off the top of your head but where where do you think it's helpful to start with someone because that's the, those are the people many of the people will be reading the book or people who have just been immersed in this this chaos yeah I would probably start at I mean the very basics like what our economy and our lifestyles and the fabric of our life is based on you know the industrial progress we've made compared to earlier generations and um, how that came along and how this is possible that we live so long and so healthy and you know I mean essentially we are you know, the longest living generation on earth and how is it possible if what we do is so bad for our environment and for our health, apparently. So I think this would be a good point to start. Um, well, and what if they thought, okay, well, isn't, isn't a lot of this just, a, I mean, aren't we, aren't we, you know, they'll hear, well, we're, you know, we're starting to suffer it now, but we're really going to suffer it in the future. And, yeah, we don't want to get rid of the civilization, but, you know, we want to use better technologies, like, you know, cleaner technologies, just like, you know, we use better computers than we used to. Yeah, I mean, in if you formulated this in this general terms, I would absolutely agree that we would exchange older technologies with newer, better technologies, but in order to do so, we would have to know that the new technologies are actually better. So a lot of the debate is about, you know, 
we should just use uh, windmills or solar panels and so on and get rid of coal power plants. But there are a lot of implications in this that are ignored in the debate, like, you know, additional cost and, you know, how these technologies actually work and so on. And I mean, you have to debate in full context of what are the consequences of a switch like this. And you would also have to address whether this alleged problem is actually a pro problem and how much we know about, you know, the change in the environment of the future. So, you know, there are a lot of things that have to be set straight before you can actually have an argument about any detail of the debate. Right, and that's 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 part of where I was getting at, and it is it's not obvious to know where to start. I, for me, one thing that was going on with me and that I think is going on with most people is that there's a very, very vague and detached from reality view of climate and its relationship to human life. And you'll, you'll see this sometimes embodied in statements such as, and there's about a tenth of, uh, of you know, one-tenth truth to these, which I'll talk about in a second, where Al Gore, Bill McKibben will talk about how, James Hansen, I think, does this too, he'll talk about how our civilization is dependent on a certain you know, fragile climate window of just a one or two degree variation, the Holocene, and that's, you know, what makes it possible to have this, you know, that, that's, that's why we have the standard of living that we do. And thus, if we, you know, if we did anything to increase it by, say, two degrees on average, it would be uh, precarious. And you, you get this idea of nature did us this 10,000 or so year favor, and that's why we're comfortable now. And that's the view of climate that in effect it's this it's this mother you know it's a it's like mother climate it's it's nurturing us and taking care of us and we are in return uh ruining it and that there because it it takes care of us and sustains us at the most fundamental level by ruining it we are going to inevitably hurt our way of life that's my sense of how people think about it and that that's my sense of how i I thought of it even if even if I didn't believe it was happening. That's that's that was the framework. So, uh, what what would you say to somebody who's coming from that view of climate? Yeah, I think that what the general idea is here is um, natural things are generally good, or like humans are adapted to the natural surroundings, and so whatever is natural is good. Like that that's a standard. But I think this is a wrong standard. So, um, for example, the idea that the climate would be stable without human influence is, you know, absolutely absurd. We know for a fact that there are many periods in the past that we don't have temperature or satellite data for because it, you know, it's hundreds or thousands of years back in time. Um, well, there have been a lot of climate changes of great magnitude. You know, the Miocene climate high and the medieval warm period and the little ice age after that. And so on. these are periods of dramatic climate change, which had a really great impact on human beings. And primarily because they didn't have the technology to adapt or avoid the impact of this climate change. You know, when you are in medieval times and, you know, you get a decade-long cool, cooling period, 
um, that's very bad for your harvest and you can't trade with other people from other parts of the world to make up for this. So this, this is a misconception of, you know, a stable natural environment that is good for human beings. But, and it's, it takes a lot to change our environment to a state where we actually live as long as we do today. So, yeah, one, one way I think about it is that if you look at I mean, the, the idea that the Holocene, it, I mean, there is something, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me about the Holocene compared to what came before, which is an ice age, is that it's warmer. And that that in general is something that's that's very desirable. And if you yeah. just look even at the globe right now, there are so many so many super 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 cold places, and the idea of that expanding a lot, you know, over you know Canada, New York, etc., that's pretty uh, scary. It's not like there are places on Earth that are 220 degrees or something like that, and that that's that's some common condition. So this these, this imagery I, I talked about with Eric about the earth on fire is very, you know, very yeah. uh, distorted. Um, let's see, what, what was I saying? Um, I lost my train of thought for a second. So we were discussing, oh yeah, the, the suitability of the, the Holocene. What, what is obvious by the data, if you're focused on human beings, which I think is part of the thing that somebody needs to be told at the beginning that, look, I'm focused on what I'm interested in is the livability of climate for human beings. I'm, I'm interested in human beings thriving. And part of that requires that there be a climate for that we can live well in. And part of that has to do with what the climate is, you know, find where you can find nice places to live and, you know, that, that you're not just dying from living there. But crucially, what you what you do you know how how you how you uh, adapt to or even you know more than that thrive enhance life within a given climate and what's not pointed out with the holocene is that for the vast majority of it people were dropping like flies as as a way of life and it wasn't until the industrial revolution and and modern technology fueled by cheap plentiful reliable energy that we start that we started actually being comfortable in the climate so it's not it's not primarily it's not that climate change doesn't matter, but it's that the thing that mattered so much is not this allegedly perfect period. It was this, you know, we can say perfect uh, or perfection or improvement of technology. Yeah, I mean, it's also an issue of uh, how much do you zoom out when you're looking at the geological time scale? I mean, if you t take something like the Holocene as a whole, I mean, at the changes and compared to that, today's, you know, changes of sea level or temperatures or so on, they are very small. If you really take a, a long time scale, you don't even notice any changes at the end. So it, it looks like it's stable, but actually it has not been stable at all. But you're right. The most important factors, at least for the last 100, 200, 300 years and more, um, have been technological advances. And we are we have a much larger population today on the planet. And without the current level of technology, that wouldn't be, quote-unquote, sustainable. You couldn't feed that many people with agriculture of pastimes, for example. You know, no matter the climate, you could have a much more optimal climate 
around the world and you couldn't feed that many people. Well, this person, you know, this person we're thinking about might have been taught that, that, well, we, you know, we're, we're living unnaturally, we're living disharmoniously with the planet and the climate and that we've had, you know, we, we're producing too many people and then at some point, you know, this, this has to stop. Maybe we're, and this gets to another criticism of fossil fuels, you know, maybe we're, we're, you know, using too many resources now and maybe we can get away with it for a couple of generations, but eventually it's all going to run out. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an idea that's, that has been around for quite some time, that we are running out of resources anytime soon. You know, if not next year, then the next generation will be hurt very badly. But I don't think it's true. I think the more people we have and the more advanced we are, the more access we have to things like energy, um, the more resources we will create. Because, because ultimately we need to create resources. Like if you take something like aluminium, this piece of metal, that wasn't a resource 1700. You know, it had to be ex explored and created by human beings. And now we use more of it than ever before. And the same is true for oil. And some, most other resources we use today, we don't think about them. I mean, we are talking about electronic devices right now. They are full of stuff that wasn't considered a resource in 1800 or 1900. Even. You know, we are using technology and materials and resources today that have been created by the many people that have been around solving issues, you know, like resource scarcity. We are not, uh, we are creating, constantly creating resources. We are not depleting the earth of resources. We are exploring and creating these resources. They are not natural resources. Yeah. And I so think I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the idea, um, that we are running out of resources, um, is well thought through because you know, you would have have to have a, like a restricting f uh, factor, like you know, uh, like a really bad policy, so that you wouldn't uh, make enough advancements in technology that you could keep up. You know, you you would have to have this uh, renewable lifestyle where you repeat the same kind of technological actions again and again, and then if you you know expands the population, of course, you will reach some limits. If we would, you know, build with wood only, at some point there wouldn't be enough, you know, wood in the forest. But yeah, that's not we true if we advance. Yeah, I mean, that, that historically happened uh, a lot. Um, all right, so I think, so we could, you know, we resources are whole issue, and we, we talked about them um, with Rob Bradley, I guess, a week, week and a half ago. Um, but I think there's a parallel with, with many parallels with the climate issue. But one is just that it's it's very very valuable for somebody to have it have it, the basic nature of the phenomenon with relation to human life explained to them, and that that's often a key component of what we're missing. So here you, you know, mentioned aluminum, you mentioned oil. That the, the Ayn Rand, as Ayn Rand would put it, um, you know, these are these are raw materials, and you know that we're the ones who transform them into resources, or as Julian Simon would say that we're, you know, the resource 
it becomes a resource once we derive uh, a service from this, but things aren't, aren't inherently uh, resources. Um, so let's see. But but and I think it's it's worth discussing the same kind of basics with uh, climate. And it's, I think it's a little bit more complicated with climate. But here's here's a question I'll ask: What, what how would you introduce someone to the issue of you know climate and its relationship to their lives? Because we can talk about you know, global climate system, we can talk about climate, we can talk about local climate, we can talk about climate change. There are all these terms that are thrown around. And I think it's, there's just this very vague sense of a general thing called the climate that yeah. we're supposed to be afraid of screwing up. So how would you, how, what, what would be, if you could just teach someone from scratch, what would be the climate 101 so that they could understand the relationship between our climate and life? I mean, first of all, it's good to define some term like the climate because then often this term is used to describe the earth as a whole. And I don't agree with that because, you know, the climate, think of it this way, the polar caps are not in the same climatic zone as Europe or Africa. You know, these are very different climates. And the earth has a complex climate system. You can think of it as, you know, little zones of climate um, that are all connected to each other and they're influenced by local and global variables. For example, um, the easiest example is the sun. The sun, you know, changes the output of its radiation and, you know, the proximity of earth to the sun changes over time. And this influences climate because the Earth is essentially giving us this warming energy that makes life on Earth possible. And um, yeah, and but the outcome of this is, you know, differs locally. Obviously, I mean, the tropics are different than the polar caps, and um, there are a lot of influencing factors. You know, many of them natural. I mentioned the sun, volcanic activity. You know changes in the ocean currents or in, you know, the atmosphere or the biosphere, you know, when there are more forests growing, that changes, you know, precipitation, temperatures, clouds, and so on. And all of these have influences, and human beings have some influence on climate. Um, we know exactly that human beings um, can have significant impact on local climate. For example, if we change forests into um, agricultural land. You know, if we plant crops instead of trees, that changes the patterns of evaporation and precipitation locally. But it can have a significant influence and it can have positive and negative influences. Um, many of the big variables, like volcanic activity under sea, we're not sure about. We don't know what, how much, you know, gases they emit and... Um, how many there are, and so on. And the sun, the sun is also a mysterium, even for the astrophysicists. So, yeah, I mean, this is a complex system that is influenced by many variables. And given the variables, the results in, a, in different climatic zones are very different. So, like a change in, let's say, greenhouse gases would have different... Um, 
different implications for the Sahara region than for Central Europe, for example. And that's important to note. And there are many issues that we are not sure about. We don't know exactly, you know, um, what influence certain ocean currents will have, like the, you know, on storms, on sea level rise, and so on. We don't know many of the natural influencing factors, and we are not sure about the human influencing factors. And often it's portrayed like uh, we are 95% uh, confident that humans are overwhelmingly responsible. I mean, that's derived from models, from theories that have a certain idea about how things work. But we are sh not sure they, you know, they exactly produce the results that uh, nature would produce. Because actually the scientists who build these models cannot be sure about many of the influencing factors. And this is very complicated for the, for the local influences. And what's really important to human beings, to concrete human beings, is not some average influx or some average temperature change, but what happens to you locally in the place where you will be living in the future. That's, that's, I think there are some misconceptions about the climate and global influencing factors and so on. We have to talk really concretely about the issues here to make any sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to focus on, on that last point. And there's the issue of modeling and prediction is, I think, a later issue and problems with that. And I mean, first, you need to understand the issue in your life and then some of the basic mechanics of it. And then you can talk about uh, to what extent can uh, people validly or accurately simulate those mechanics and make future predictions, um, including with certain human inputs added. So, so if I'm, I'm right now, I'm in, uh, I got, uh, in West Virginia yesterday, I'm in Chevy Chase, Maryland at the moment. That's where my family is from. Uh, I was, cause I got grounded by guess what? Cold weather. Uh, so I'm on the East coast for a little while recording this. And so I'm just thinking of, you know, climate right now, local, just trying to think of this issue in, in very personal terms, you know, in any given just having grown up here, I'll remember, let's say, you know, any given year, let's say 1996, that's a very memorable weather year because there was something called the, the blizzard of 96 where it snowed 30 inches and got to get not go to school for two weeks and could snowboard down uh, local hills uh, pretty, pretty easily. And, you know, and then at the same time, it there was a hot summer and humidity and all, all of those things. Uh and then, so there's that, so there's there's just the, well, let me just ask, it seems like it's not quite right to describe, to describe that as climate, since climate has to do with trends, but it also seems not quite right to just describe this as weather, because there's, weather to me is, is just a discrete thing, um, or maybe it's, maybe it's weather patterns or seasons, what's, what's the right way to just describe, you know, the atmosphere and elements around you? just day to day well yeah i mean there's i mean you can define climate as long-term averages of weather variables like temperature precipitation and so on um humidity and um yeah i mean it's it's very interesting that um you know Sometimes the distinction between weather and climate is made by 
proponents of anthropogenic global warming. But on other days, they forget about that. They just, you know, attribute every flood, every storm in, at least in part to human influence on climate. And the problem with that is if you take something like a storm, that is a freak event. It's, it's very rare. It's, it's an outburst of energy and it's, Formation and movement is very complex, and we can't really tell where it comes from. You can see this by the prediction of storms uh, never tells you when next week, uh, next week a new storm is formed. They look at the storm when it's formed, and then they predict a path for some hours or days in advance. But they never say next week we will three, uh, see three storms in the Gulf of Mexico. That's impossible because it's too many, too complex input factors into this. So, yeah, I mean, climate is, climate is certainly influencing weather because, you know, if you take something like a long-term development in precipitation, that will have an influence on the number of, you know, rainfall events. But the problem is that short-term variability is often so large that you can't really say, you know, this has been enhanced X percent by issues from climate change. So, yeah. So it's, it's really hard to make that connection because of the limited knowledge we have about climate as well as weather. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm trying to get at just even even terminology. It doesn't seem like that the terminology used. I mean, you've got this climate, which which is at least usually used as a technically as a trend, and then you've yeah. got weather. But um, I mean, I'll give you an equivalent. You know, the concept of environment, I think, is a good uh, is an effective concept as long as it's recognized as the environment of some particular uh, thing. You know, which has certain purposes and is evaluated in uh, in relation to those purposes. So if I think about okay, my environment in well, right now in in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Okay, so I can it has different features. I mean, from the sun, which everyone has to one degree or another, to trees, to uh, man-made things like houses, and and then also um, you know just temperature and weather and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those, those change over time, of course. Uh, like to just say weather in my mind, I guess, I guess that, that to me, that just, that focuses on, on weather events versus the more, uh, continuous things. And then climate seems to focus more on the general background weather. Is there, I'm just, I don't like it when I don't feel like I have a perfect word for something. Well, I mean, weather is, you don't talk about weather when it's, you know, nice weather or continuous weather. I mean, you talk about bad weather, like, you know, suddenly it starts to rain or there's a thunderstorm or whatever. But I mean, weather technically is just, you know, the current condition of your, you know, climatic environment, so to speak. But it's not, I don't think there's, you know, a, a very, very precise definition of that because it's, 
used colloquially. So. Yeah, that's interesting. That that the, just in the usage, it's it's skewed. Although sometimes you'll ask, at least where I'm from in Southern California, people will always ask, "How's the weather out there?" Yeah, because it's they'll they'll anticipate that it's going to be much nicer out there than it is where they are. Yeah, and you uh, never thought about it until that point when someone asks you, "Oh, yeah, it's you know sunny or rainy, whatever." Yeah, I guess you'll say, well, I'm nice with it. In the climate discussion, weather is almost always just a negative. It's almost yeah. always, you know, this is a negative weather event. And in, in, in my mind, and I think therefore, I'm sure in other people's, it's it's that, that sort of weather, weather starts to become coextensive with some, you know, Katrina and Yeah, I think the, the idea behind this is like, you know, if it's stable, you don't have to do anything. But if you if it's changing, you can always say, well, there has to be adaption that is somewhat threatening, you know. And I mean, in the climate debate, it's often, you know, whatever comes, it will get worse. It's it's like, you know, news reporting bias. You don't report there were no storms. You report when there are really bad storms with a lot of people who get hurt. And that's that's true with climate and weather. They always take, you know, events out of context and say, well, this has been aggravated by, you know, human climate change. And the idea behind this is if something is somewhat stable or mild, you can't really connect that to something bad. So stable is good and changing is bad. I mean, what is it? What is what is the reference point for stable when you talk about weather and and climate? I mean, I guess I guess you can you can compare <clears throat> climates that way. So, for example, Chicago, which is always the nightmare airport to fly through because everything is always getting canceled and has so much you know has so much variability. I don't know if it's instability, but it's at least from the perspective of a given temperature it's not stable throughout the year. I think it varies by something like 100 degrees throughout the year um, versus Southern California is much more. I don't know exactly what the variation is, but throughout the year, you know, it's rarely much over 100. It's, it's uh, you know, it's often comfortable, high 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, wh where does it make sense to talk about stability? Because it doesn't seem at all to make sense to talk about stability in terms of the whole, mm. yeah. the global climate. Well, I mean, if you look at something like um, temperature graph, you know, like from some official source, and they often state like, you know, this generally was uh, 0.3 degrees um, above normal. And then they use this word normal, and what they mean is a statistical average over like 30 years. And that's, but to say this is normal is... Uh, not really an intelligent way of putting it, I would say, because, you know, normal implies that there's a normal, you know, nine out of 10 days you get normal weather and then suddenly you get something not normal. But it's like um, every statistic has an average. But, you know, if you would would look at the average height of uh, American adults, adult males, for example, you will get very few people, if any, that have exactly that, you know, height to the nanometer. 
It's it's just an an, an average. It's just an abstract number. It's an, it's an abstract concept. And now nobody would get the idea to say, well, that's a normal height for an, an American male adult. That's just not. It's an absurd concept to say it's normal, because the volatility, even on a daily basis, in temperature, for example, you know, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. There's nothing, nothing stable or normal about it. Okay, so so to bring that back to climate, how how is that? In what sense does it make sense to talk about the concept of of stability? Because I think I think there's a, a some sort of metaphor or mental image going on with that that it's that it's some it's this machine and then it's thrown out of out of whack you know it's like a machine yeah. with a purpose and it's it's destabilized which is different say than the concept of variability which is is morally agnostic and doesn't imply a purpose and just says change so it 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 makes sense to say that weather is variable that climate is is variable it's variable over time it's internally variable and you can even say that that the speed of change can increase and that that can be something to pay attention to. Let's say if your sea levels were rising quickly, that would be something to pay attention to. But the idea of being destabilized seems like it's, it's, it's at least very likely assuming that, that the climate has some sort of divine, like good purpose left to its own devices and that we're doing something bad. Yeah, it would, it would make some sense to, you know, talk about deviation from average, like, you know, a temperature span from X to Y uh, in the long-term average, and then you would observe, you know, some differences, you know, like um, decadal patterns of temperature changes in California, for example. That would make a lot of sense, but it's not, I mean, saying stable is like saying, you know, there's some standard value that sh that um, never changes over a period of time, but that's never the case. You know, it, it always goes up and down. And yeah, I don't I don't think stable is the right word. I mean, deviation from average is that that makes sense because it explains something like you know if you have a have a drought period like you have currently in California, it makes sense to find some reason for that, like, you know, shift in Pacific ocean current. And then even, you know, long-term climate influences could be visible in that. But, you know, nothing in climate has ever been stable or is stable or will be stable with or without human influence or any influence of any life form on Earth. You know, the climate is inherently instable since it has an atmosphere. You know, it's, it can't be stable. It's, Can you elaborate on that? Well, S just since uh, it has an atmosphere, that part? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the moon that has not an atmosphere, that is just, you know, a piece of rock and then it mainly gets influenced by which side of it gets faces to the sun. You know, it gets very hot and very cold. Very hot on the side that faces to the sun and very cold on the other side. And that is, you know, it has, you could say the moon has no climate. I mean, 
the temperature thing it has. But and on planet Earth, we have an atmosphere, and the Earth rotates around the axis and around the sun in a rather complex pattern. And as I said before, the sun itself changes its radiation output and particle output. And that influences the Earth's atmosphere. This rotation, this movement, this creates dynamics in the Earth's atmosphere and in the oceans, for that matter. And um, these changes would take place without human beings on Earth or even a biosphere, any life form on Earth. You know, this just just the physics of our Earth traveling through space around uh, a star just creates climate change. Climate is inherently changing. Yeah, because it's it's interesting that I mean, the, I think what's what's plausible about the fear of climate change is that. You know, there have been periods in history where there have been dramatic changes. And the other day yeah. we were discussing a meteor, like a massive meteor strike or something like that, and what that would do and what that do to the atmosphere. I mean, there is such, there is a, I don't know how to put it. I mean, there there is a range uh, of like atmosphere, state of, state of, states of affairs that, human beings can and can't live under. Like, if the sun disappeared, that's a big, big problem. Yeah. And uh, if there's no atmosphere, that's a big, big right. problem. Yeah. But... If there's no gravity, yeah. Yeah. There's... Yeah, there's no gravity. But... Um, but within that, it, it's just... So there's, there's certain... There's certain just, like, fundamentals of a potentially livable climate. You know, a sun... An atmosphere, um, and then you know temperatures within uh, you know a certain range. Although even there, I don't like at a certain point of technology, I don't know what what you can say the range. Yeah, we send people in space, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, so it's 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 that, and, and it's this this sort of nuanced point that yeah, it's so it's that. <laughs> You need a climate, right? You need a climate to live in. Um, and it's not irrelevant. You know, the, the state of the global climate, the state of that system or the change in the system are not irrelevant. But I guess the primary relevance seems usually be, I mean, the biggest factors seem to be where you choose to live and then the technology you choose to use where you live because it is always going to be the sim the system is always going to include all sorts of places with various <coughs> risks and benefits and so the power is in choosing where to go and then when you go maximizing the benefits and minimizing uh the risks and so with that in mind the 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 attention paid to the system as such and the attempt to summarize it as good or bad using uh, the global mean temperature anomaly or something like that seems very mis misguided, and thus it focuses on, hey, how are we how are we affecting this average versus no in this incredibly diverse and variable system? How are we pursuing our individual lives? And and thus, when you take something like fossil fuels, fossil fuels are dramatically improving our ability to 
improve our individual lives in you know the system and they have some although it doesn't seem like a very big impact on average but the the real thing to pay attention to is how they allow us to enhance our lives and yet because of the focus on climate as a whole the only focus is on oh how do they affect that average and the whole actual benefit to our lives is, is invisible to the very people benefiting from it yeah you talked about you know options and choices and um the important thing is fossil fuels give us these options and choices you know without fossil fuels you're just exposed to nature to natural surroundings and you know you can't do much about the weather you know you're you're you have a fixed piece of land and then you have to live from that territory from you know whatever you seeds you plant there and so on and what mud hut you can construct there with your own hands so the fossil fuels and the technology powered by fossil fuels give us these choices i mean we are really blessed that we can adapt and change our artificial surroundings um to deal with weather and climate yeah definitely all right well we're um we're gonna have to wrap up soon let me just see if there are any last minute questions that well i'll ask i'll ask you this um let's say well let's see if we can do with with both of these quickly um first one is just in a in a minute or two what if we were to think of things that actually could go wrong in terms of the global climate system or negative changes what would they what would actually be scary because Eric and I were talking the other day and it's we found it pretty hard to think of something that technology and energy equipped human beings wouldn't be able to deal with <laughs> well it's i mean it's hard to predict in detail what influence certain things would have but i would say you know the sun recently has been very low in activity and according to some people this might lead to global cooling long term over decades and i would say global cooling significantly could um reduce our ability to deal with you know things on the local level like for example if if you have um fewer sun hours that restricts your ability to grow food in Europe. Europe is a small, I come from Europe, so I'm biased towards Europe. Europe is a very small continent and, um, you know, if, if the overall global input would mean average, on average lower temperatures, that would significantly reduce our productivity in agriculture. That's so, so cooling would be a really bad thing. So, I mean, if you would increase the number of storms significantly, then you would see some impact. But, I mean, something like storms are really rare incidents. So you would be affected, but it's not something you cannot deal with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are some big variables that uh, could turn things what I mean what about so let's say let's say let's say that there's actually 
that the sea level data wasn't what it was and that there was a you know rapid acceleration yeah there was a real acceleration and you know that could actually affect you know maybe maybe not quite inconvenient truth 20 foot levels but something significant the last question is how would like a rational group of concerned scientists act versus how they act today so i mean today they well i don't want to i don't want to bias your answer but what 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 would be let's say they were you know the the um you know the believers in catastrophic climate change from fossil fuels let's say that they they were much more accurate in terms of their models and their claims than they are today that there was a real problem what would be a rational approach to it versus what they take which is essentially oppose fossil fuels oppose nuclear um dam industrial civilization etc well first of all things i would say i mean a rational you know advisor would say um we see some problems in the future because of these developments um, and this will have a certain impact for your like country or region on a local level because that's very important right you know if it doesn't make much change for a spot in the tropics then you don't need to do much differently but then you would have to assess what options do you have what what can you do how can you impact potentially or adapt to changes that might be harmful to you. So it would be an optimization strategy, I think. So, you know, maybe it would make sense to avoid some kind of emission. Then you might propose something like nuclear energy, which is very few emissions per unit of energy created. Uh, but you would always ha uh, have to keep in mind the cost of changing things. You wouldn't just say, well, let's take the most expensive energy source and, you know, replace the cheapest one with that, and then let's see how it goes. That's <laughs> that's your that, own, that's Germany's policy. Yeah, well, they're struggling to change that a little bit right now, but <laughs> yeah, if you I know, know, yeah. Oh, keep going. Um, yeah, I mean. It's not a sensible strategy to say, well, we have identified this problem that humans cause. Because it, it's, at this stage, it would be relevant who causes the problem. It would be relevant what are the options. You know, adapting, changing things, and so on. You know, it, it might not be the optimal strategy to, you know, get rid of fossil fuels, but rather to increase fossil fuel use, you know, to be more... To, to get more options to adapt to a future change locally. That's an interesting, I like that wrinkle, which I hadn't thought of. You could think of it as, I mean, think of, think of what, what we've done with pollution from say coal. I mean, part of that is, well, we, we develop new technologies, which is a process that takes energy and presumably the technologies themselves take energy to better filter the emissions. So we're using fossil fuels to make fossil fuels cleaner. And so if fossil fuels had a byproduct that had you know, some negative climate-related impact, then one strategy would be to say, okay, well, let's, let's use more of this uh, 
to mitigate the impact. And what what strikes me is that that the fact that that's not considered shows that there is this this religious view that we are climate sinners and that we have no right to change things and we did the wrong thing and now we're paying now we're going to hell so we have to we have to repent and we have to we have to stop doing what we're doing versus no at any stage um you know there's always going to be a a constellation of effects from the products and byproducts of what we do and the question is what's best for human beings and not not having this environmental or climate original sin yeah just to make one analogy i mean something that has been in the newspapers recently is this smog issue in china and big cities like beijing and shanghai and so on and you know you would think what is the appropriate reaction to that i mean it's obviously a real problem i mean the extent of which is debatable but um if you want to avoid this pollution what what are your options and um you know this is like the climate analogy is some people just saying well just use you know a certain kind of power like wind power but it might be sensible to use you know dirtier coal like lignite and then use the savings um to use better filtration technology to go to the american or european standard of coal filtration technology you know that would reduce the problem that would be a might be a viable option but um the alarmists on the climate issue always have one answer to that and that is to promote what i call non-solutions like you know you're using solar power in germany which makes no sense it's the latitude of southern canada it makes no sense to use a lot of solar power in germany but that's a non-solution they offer yeah and it's a uh, this is a really good part a uh, portion of peter schwartz's essay um what is it called um the philosophy of privation in in the book the anti no it's Re- the book return of the primitive which is an adaptation of the book the new left the anti-industrial revolution by Ayn Rand and uh, you know, he just he makes the point well that no matter what the problem the solution is always the retraction of the yeah. relevant technology i don't know if he puts it that way but but it's it's to stop using the technology and yeah. sometimes there's this imaginary phony replacement technology but it's it's really just oh if what we're doing is causing a problem let's stop it versus find a better way to do it or find a better uh, better cluster of things to do so that the negative impacts of this are offset by positive impacts and other things but but there's this view that no it's it's morally wrong for us to have any kind of change to make any kind of change and therefore we just got to stop and stop stop looking for stop just sort of pay what they would say stop putting band-aids over the problem um yeah or you have to bleed a bit for your sins you know? yeah and stop trying to just make everything so so great and you know the answer at cip is is no let's keep trying to make things great so we gotta uh wrap up any i'll give you 30 seconds any any final thoughts to share with listeners on in thinking about this issue um not at the moment we'll give the best answer to that in the book yeah that'll be that'll be a couple months all right Stefan thanks for coming 
Thank you. Thanks again to Stefan Hen for being on the show. In terms of takeaways, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to keep this week a little bit shorter. Last week, I hope I hope you got through all of it. I think it was an hour and and 45 minutes. Um, but you know, I think I think just one thing to take away is that it often helps to approach issues from a fresh perspective and act as if not as if and not as if no knowledge exists, but as if you, what's the question, if you're approaching it for the first time, what, what sorts of questions would you ask? And a lot of things you would ask, I think, would be basic oriented questions, such as, what exactly is the issue here? What is the concern? What kind of answer are we looking for? And then more specifically, what is climate? What is the climate? There is a certain tendency to take terminology for granted and questions for granted. I think I discussed this on um, one of the episodes called How to Think About Energy Issues. There was part one and part two, and I think I discussed it on one of those. But essentially, we tend to treat terminology as innocent, and we tend to treat questions as innocent. But both terminology and questions have certain assumptions buried in them. Um, For example, the whole idea of climate change or man-made climate change has an assumption that that is a bad thing. At least it's it's usually it's usually framed that way. Is that there's something wrong with man having an impact on on climate, and that that's a false assumption. That's precisely the kind of thing you need uh, to question. I think Eric and Stefan are both very very good at that, and that's why I was happy to have both of them on the show. All right. With that, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Refer your friends to the podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy or and or I love fossil fuels, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. And I think that's pretty much well, there's always the YouTube page, youtube.com slash improve the planet. And that's it for now. But no matter what, make sure you're on on the newsletter. You can get on at industrialprogress.com. All right, next week we will be back with another great topic, another great chapter topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.